0: Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson. Tonight, turns out the symptoms of societal decay are universal. They're not unique to a specific society. You recognize them in any country at any time, now or a thousand years ago. Always the same. The men become weak. The leaders get decadent. Law enforcement gets politicized. The currency gets devalued. And then things begin to come apart. Pretty soon, doesn't take long, the society can no longer perform its most basic function. The reason we have societies in the first place, which is to protect the weak from the strong. That's why you have a society. Well, in places like this, it becomes, among many other things, very hard to travel anywhere. You just can't go where you want to go. With legitimate authority in retreat, roads are not controlled by the police. They're controlled by armed predators. And the armed predators take exactly what they want from travelers because they can't. This is an ancient problem. It used to be called highway robbery. And for most of history, it kept people very close to home. Turns out it still exists, but now it's called carjacking. Carjacking is the clearest possible sign that your civilization is falling apart. And that's why you find it in places like Somalia and South Africa, places where force, violence, and clan loyalty have replaced law and order, places where might makes right. In the city of Johannesburg, for example, a vehicle is hijacked on average once every hour of the day. Now, once that happens, there's really no coming back from it. Nobody's gonna build anything in a city with endemic carjacking. In fact, most normal people will leave as fast as they can, as they have in Johannesburg. As they are starting to do, we are sad to tell you, in the city of New Orleans, where carjacking is now a permanent feature of life. Last summer, a law student called Madison Bergeron pulled into the driveway of her home in New Orleans. As she gathered her belongings in the car, a young man appeared out of nowhere, stuck a gun in her face, and demanded that she hand over everything she had, including the car. He screamed at her. Terrified, she complied. And that's what carjacking is always like. It is an act of violence. People don't want to give up their cars. They have to be terrified into doing so. That's why the majority of victims are women, old women, young women. And that's why the people who do it will do anything. If you will carjack, if you will steal someone's car at gunpoint, you will also rape. You will also murder. You have no limits. You are willing to violate on the most basic level the civil rights of another person. And in this case, that was certainly true because that same perpetrator went on after terrifying Madison Bergeron and stealing her, her car to do the same to other women in the city. A lot of them. There was a car blocking me in, one victim recalled, and next thing I turn and there's yelling and there's a gun barrel in my face. The kid is yelling to get the F out of the car, get the F out of the car or else he will shoot me. In all, the carjacker would terrorize five women and steal five cars in just two days before New Orleans police finally arrested him. And it's amazing that they did because there are virtually no police left in New Orleans. In a city that probably needs about 2,000 cops, there are under 500 active duty policemen left in New Orleans. In New Orleans, they have definitely defunded the police. But in this case, the carjacker, a young teenager, was ultimately caught, tried, convicted, and sentenced for his crimes. Now, these crimes got a lot of attention in New Orleans. So the mayor of the city, Lotoya Cantrell, showed up to the sentencing. But here's the twist in the story. Mayor Cantrell didn't show up to support the victims, the women who'd been terrorized by this predator, no. The mayor showed up to support the carjacker and to let the entire city know that she was doing it, to let everyone know whose side she was on. Watch.
1: The mayor showed up in court as a character witness for a 14-year-old offender during sentencing. The teen robbed three women in separate incidents with a fake gun, stealing their cars and belongings. The victims told Fox 8 they were traumatized by what happened and then they felt victimized all over again when the mayor showed up in support of the young criminal.
2: I was in shock. She wasn't there for us. She was there for the assaultant and his mother and she fe- it felt like she was supporting the crime.
1: Juvenile judge Renard Darensberg sentenced the juvenile to a three-year suspended sentence meaning no jail time.
0: It felt like she was supporting the crime, said the victim. Well, yes, it did, because that's exactly what the mayor was doing. Cantrell was taking the side of the carjacker over the traumatized, law-abiding woman. Now, in New Orleans, Cantrell is known by her nickname, T.D., but many people call her exactly what she is, LaToya the Destroyer. She is, in fact, a destroyer. The mayor is incompetent. The mayor is an open race hater. The mayor is an encourager of violence, and she is destroying an already wounded city. We reached out to Mayor Cantrell's office to ask why she is doing all of this. Why did she pressure a judge to release a convicted armed carjacker with no prison time? But of course, she didn't reply to us. It turns out the mayor of New Orleans had a connection to this carjacker. Cantrell had enrolled this person in one of her administration's welfare programs called Pathways Youth Internship Program. Using taxpayer money, the program says it provides young people who commit crimes with a reward, paid internships, and a stipend. We contacted the Pathways program this morning. We wanted to know how many people enrolled in that program go on to commit violent crime within five years. We also asked how much taxpayer money they spend, but of course they didn't answer. But we don't need an answer. We know exactly what this is. Pathways, like most social justice scams, is not in fact designed to reduce crime, It's about siding with the criminal, giving the criminals as much support as they need, even a courtroom visit from the mayor if necessary, so they can go out and commit more crimes as soon as possible. So why would you do something like this if you were the mayor of a city of New Orleans? Why would you force people to leave your city, the people who pay all the taxes of all colors, by the way? Why would you do that? Well, possibly because the people who are left tend to be the ones who vote for you. So it is a kind of electoral strategy. It's not just happening in New Orleans, it's happening in a lot of places. The downside is it leads to carnage. There have already been 191 carjackings in the city of New Orleans this year alone. Through all of last year, there were a total of 177. Now, most of these carjackings, and this is true in a lot of other places, Washington, D.C., we think, most of these are committed by people under the age of 18. Why? Because they know they'll get off. There's no cause. The local station, WWLTV, found that in 2021, juvenile carjacking suspects outnumbered adults by more than two to one. Now, that doesn't mean that these are Nerf versions of carjackings. They're very violent. In fact, they're always violent, and sometimes they're fatal. In March, several juveniles aged 15 to 17 mutilated the body of a grandmother, an elderly woman, as they carjacked her in mid-city New Orleans. They dragged her body down the street. Here's Fox 8 New Orleans reporting on it.
3: 17-year-old John Honoré, 16-year-old Bernaya Baker, and 15-year-olds Markel Curtis and Lynn, R- Lynn Raya Theophile will be tried as adults on second-degree murder charges. Police say that the teens carjacked Linda Fricky in Mid-City back in March. Fricky was beat and then dragged outside of her car until her arm was
0: eventually severed from her body. She then bled to death in the middle of the street. So again, society exists not to protect 17-year-olds with guns. On the most basic level, those are the strongest people in society, people willing to use force to get what they want. No, society exists to protect people who need the protection, the helpless, the weak, grandmothers who might be dragged and have their arms ripped off without police protection. And of course, in the absence of police protection and in the absence of leadership, that cares about the weak, those are exactly the person who are people who are murdered. And it's not just happening in New Orleans. What's interesting, if you pull back a little bit, and we have because we think that carjacking is a really clear indication of things unraveling, you find that cities with Soros-backed DAs and well-funded diversion programs for at-risk youth are seeing surges in carjackings. Could there be a connection? Philadelphia, for example, Consider that city. This is reporting from the local station there, Fox 29.
4: Carjackings in Philly, a crime that's been exploding over the last several months. And according to Philly, police numbers released to Steve Keeley by a source, it's getting worse. From January 1st of this year through July 31st, a police source says there have been 757 carjackings citywide. There were roughly 850 carjackings in all of 2021. The latest sourced police statistics show that the majority of these carjackings, more than 500, happened at gunpoint and also happened while the victims were at their parked cars.
0: So why is this happening? Well, it's happening for very deep reasons. Any 15 or 17 year old who sticks a gun in the face of strangers, threatens their lives or kills them in order to steal a car, is the product of something that is very hard to fix, disintegrating families, that's the real reason. But society, the authorities still have an obligation to try and stop it for the sake of the rest of us. So what are these cities doing to stop it? Well, Philadelphia, like New Orleans, sends so-called at-risk youth to violin lessons through something called the Philadelphia Arts and Education Partnership. So the idea is, after a month of violin lessons, these young criminals, people who've been busted committing crimes, get their records expunged. That was the plan that Philadelphia's DA put into place last year. Has it worked? Well, sad to tell you that despite the violin lessons, crime has gone up among young people, carjackings in particular. As Philadelphia's police commissioner Daniel Outlaw put it, quote, I don't want to say it's surprising, (laughs) but it's definitely concerning, really. Well, it's not surprising to us, but it is for sure an understatement. From 2020 to 2021, there's been a 108% increase in carjackings in Philadelphia. Chicago, too, putting up similar numbers. Chicago has had more than 1,000 carjackings this year alone. What does that do to a city, A 1,000 carjackings? For every carjacking, there is a much larger group of people now afraid to drive. Hmm. Now, Chicago is the place where Soros-backed DA Kim Fox recently implemented something called the Juvenile Intervention and Support Center. Right. For this initiative, Fox partnered with a more quoting black owned black run businesses called Chi by Design, which pledges to quote, be bold in our collaborative approach to create anti-racist outcomes. Really? So it's been completely politicized. The point of law enforcement traditionally has been to enforce the law, laws that are passed by legislatures as a product of the democratic process in order to protect everybody else. Now the point of law enforcement is to affect anti-racist outcomes. In other words, political outcomes. How's that working in Chicago? Well, here's Fox 32 Chicago to tell you. Yeah.
1: There's
3: a carjack car. Yep. yep. Chicago, we, we got eyes on it.
5: One of the passengers in the stolen SUV eventually fled. When police caught him, they discovered he was 17 years old, released to his mother. I'm Sadly, he's not the youngest suspect that members of the carjacking task force have seen.
3: Uh, a well-known 11-year-old.
5: That have been in contact with police before? Yes. Yes. An 11-year-old was arrested in Chicago as part of a carjacking crew, and it was not his first time.
0: 11 years old. One of that carjacker's victims said that, quote, he actually skipped like a child all the way up to the car he stole. We can't tell you his name because he's an at-risk youth, apparently needs more violin lessons, and he will soon be a productive member of society. This is a joke. The people administering the program know it's a joke. It doesn't achieve the main overriding goal, which is to protect people who just want to go to the grocery store, protect grandmothers who want to go to church, protect everybody else who wants to go to work in the morning, who wants to live in a city where you can travel on the roads without being killed. Chicago's leaders don't care. The same is true, by the way, of the unnamed 16 year old girl who hijacked a man's Audi while his child was in the car. That's an atrocity. Here's Fox's 32 in Chicago. Not a theft, just a car
2: now. Six year old East 23rd, child's in the car.
4: The frantic father reports his car stolen. Somebody jumped into his black Audi Q7 with a dealer plate. His child
0: is in the car. So as you so often see in these cases, the person who commits the crime has committed a ton of other crime because it turns out most crimes are committed by a very small number of people. And in this case, the girl who stole that car stole several other cars that month, which makes you wonder, maybe violin lessons and visits in the courtroom from the mayor don't really work. Maybe these people need a father at home. The nuclear family, (laughs) right. Those things are not in fact racist, they are essential to any functioning civilization. And in lieu of them, it is clear that things fall apart. And the only thing you can do is to put people out of the public sphere, away, so that other people aren't hurt by them. That's the best we can do. And it's obligatory that we do it because people are being killed. And if you don't do that, you wind up with a society in which 11-year-olds treat carjacking like a sport because they know they can get out of jail very quickly. Here's Fox 2 in Detroit.
3: Detroit police arrested an 11-,
5: 12-, and 14-year-old for stealing high-end hellcats off the Jefferson North lots. They think it's fun. You know, they think it's fun and there's no penalty to it
3: head of the Detroit police commercial auto theft unit, Lieutenant Clive Stewart, stunned over the trio of kids arrested Monday right here on the storage lot of the Jefferson North plant. In a separate incident, this kid, just 14 years old, an alleged repeat carjacker arrested this weekend. He was out on bond from a carjacking in May. Then last week, police say he jacked two cars on the city's east side the same night.
0: So if you look closely enough at this specific problem, carjacking, and it's one of many problems in our society that seem to be getting worse. But just look at this one and you begin to realize, because everything is irony at this point, the youth violence prevention initiatives are supposed to stop this, actually enable it, indeed appear to be encouraging it. And yet they're still getting millions of dollars from the Biden administration. The youth diversion programs that make these kinds of crimes more common have a lot in common with the equity programs for unhoused people that seem to encourage homelessness. Those too have led to more carjackings. Here's a report from Fox 11 in LA. Carjacking caught on camera, witnesses keeping their distance as a homeless man punches a street vendor, then steals his van. The street vendor was carjacked by a
1: homeless man over the weekend. Esteban yo, says
0: he he'd me... even seen his attacker before and that he had never had a problem with him, adding that he gave the man food shortly before he punched him in the face. Yeah. So if they're happening in New Orleans and Los Angeles and Chicago, of course, this is happening in our biggest city, New York. Which is also run by yet another Soros DA. But as evidence of the collapse of social order is in Philadelphia, Detroit, LA, and Las Vegas, nowhere in the country is experiencing a bigger increase in carjackings than the birthplace of our new civil rights movement, Minneapolis, where this all started. According to the National Insurance Crime Bureau, Minneapolis saw the largest percent increase in carjackings in the country from 2019 to 2021, a 339% jump. What the hell is going on? And why is no one saying anything about it? And why are these cities doing nothing to stop it? Subscribe to the Fox News YouTube channel to catch our nightly opens. Stories that are changing the world and changing your life. From Tucker Carlson tonight. I spent a lot of time telling you how the cities are falling apart and most of them seem to be, but not all of them are. Here's a pretty amazing success story. We're not exactly sure why it's happening, but we're gonna try and find out right now. The city of Miami, Is on track for the lowest crime rate since the 1930s since Al Capone moved there why what are they doing that no one else is doing francis suarez is the mayor of miami he joins us now mr mayor thanks so much for coming on i wish we'd done this story earlier i wasn't even aware of it till today what exactly are you doing in miami that america's other cities are not doing
5: well i'm going to blow your mind away we actually increase funding for police so we have the most police officers we've ever had in our history. Uh, We've also uh, lowered taxes to the lowest level in recorded history, which has prompted tremendous growth. We grew 12%. I think it's the second most uh, in recorded history as well. We have a 1.4% unemployment. We're the happiest city in America and the healthiest city in America. So it turns out if people are healthy, they're happy, they're working, they're not paying a lot of taxes, and they see uh, uh, an increased police presence, uh, they don't have a tendency to to commit murder. Um, and, and that's what's uh, been the Miami miracle story, uh, which is uh, a huge contrast to the Washington nightmare story uh, that you've, uh, you know, you've articulated tonight and over the last few weeks.
0: So there's this great video floating around the internet, I assume it's real, of the riots in the early summer of 2020 and they, people came to Miami and decided they were gonna riot. And all these Miami cops come out, come out of a patrol car and say, no, it's our city, we don't, we're not doing that here. We're just not doing that. Did you ever have meaningful riots in Miami?
5: We really didn't, because like you said, we drew the line uh, in the sand and we said, you're not going to hurt people. You're not going to destroy property. Um, That's something we're just not going to tolerate in our city. And so, um, you know, I think the first night uh, we had uh, some some issues, but right away, I think it was pretty clear that we weren't going to tolerate it. We weren't going to accept it. And so whoever came in from out of town uh, obviously realized that uh, Miami wasn't uh, a place that was going to accept that kind of behavior and left and went to somewhere else to, to create havoc over there. What's so funny is that for a long
0: time, beginning in probably around 1980, for at least a decade after, Miami was famous, fairly or not, for crime. It was a whole TV show about it, Miami Vice. Is it kind of weird to be now famous for being safe?
5: You know, uh, I grew up in Miami. I was born and raised there. I was born in 1977. You know, in the 80s, we had 300 plus homicides. Right now, and I knock on wood here in the the studio, we are at uh, 28 year to date. Uh, So from 300 plus uh, to 28, and we're hoping uh, the trend continues for the rest of the year. And uh, they're literally we had to look back in our archives to see uh, when was the last time uh, we were ever that low. And so, like I said, you know, it's really a a trusted and true, uh, you know, formula for success. We keep taxes Mm -hmm. low. We keep people safe and we lean into innovation to create high paying jobs. It's uh, sort of the the Miami story. And uh, it's something that uh, should be scaled across America. It's pretty
0: incredible. Murders are the one thing that are pretty easy to measure, so there's kind of no lying about how many murders you have. That's why it's just a, no it's lying an amazing about story. that.
5: Absolutely, Mr. Mayor. Right. Thanks
0: so much for joining us, Francis Suarez of Miami. Thank you, Tucker.
3: Uh, Doctor Navarro, Doctor Hadfield, I want to bring you in a big report coming out today and a huge story in Politico about kind of the administrative state. And you two, uh, you, Peter, as the, the chief, uh, economic advisor, the president for trade and manufacturing, and then Dr. Halffield going over with his amazing reputation. You had to take on the administrative state in the, in the guise of, uh, the, the medical part of it, of Tony Fauci, the FDA, the CDC. Walk us through what this, what this house report says. You two guys are kind of named in it. What's the controversy?
4: Yeah, uh, Steve, I'll do the politics. I'll let Stephen do the, the the science here as a tag team. But just one quick comment on Ed Luce. Dude, the FBI put me in leg irons and solitary confinement. So don't talk to me. You're smack about Republicans overstating the bullying at the FBI. OK, just saying, Steve. All right. So today, this uh, House Select, they always put the word select, I don't know why, the Select Subcommittee on the coronavirus comes out with this report that claims that I, quote, wrongly pressured Commissioner Stephen Hahn and the FDA to use hydroxychloroquine as a therapeutic in the fight against COVID, okay? So the first thing to notice here is that the underlying presumption is that hydroxychloroquine doesn't work. To treat COVID and is dangerous. That's kind of the hydroxy hysteria that has prevailed through this entire debate. Okay. But the reality is, at the time, I was a White House official serving President Trump. President Trump on March 19, 2020, directed the friggin' FBI along with Alex Azar directing the FDA to provide this uh, therapeutic called hydroxychloroquine used for more than 50 years safely as an anti-malarial drug to use it in what's called early treatment outpatient use. In other words, you get a sore throat and start to get a fever, you pop hydroxychloroquine for seven days. The science told us at that point in time that that would likely help you mitigate Your symptoms or even drive the virus away. So Stephen Hahn had a direct order from the president and the secretary of health and human services to put out a directive that would allow physicians around the country to prescribe hydroxychloroquine off label in early treatment use. What did Han do, along with his successor, Janet Woodcock, and this shadowy guy named Rick Bright? They directly countermanded countermanded that order in a way which killed people. Instead of using hydroxychloroquine, in early treatment outpatient use, they said the only way you could use it is in late-stage treatment for hospitalized patients close to the time they're almost dead, when hydroxychloroquine does not work, okay? The science is clear on this. And so they're accusing me of wrongly pressuring the FDA, when in fact, the president had told them to do that to save American lives. They didn't do it. And the result was the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans needlessly because of what Han. The FDA, Janet Woodcock, Rick Bright, with the help of CNN, Cheryl Stolberg over at the New York Times, reporters at the Washington Post, and all of these hydroxy hysterics who claimed wrongly that this drug didn't work. Now, let me turn it over to Hatfield now, because he'll tell you. That right now, the latest yeah.
3: study St- we d- have, d- the latest yeah, ha- study we have says yeah, it didn't off. work. Yep. Yeah, hang Okay, let me go to Hatfield. Hatfield, at the time when we're talking about this, this is in 2020, walk us through the evidence about uh, the medicine and the science at the time, Dr. Hatfield.
2: The studies that were being done uh, initially were the late, late phase studies because it was a clinical trial, and that was the condition. You had to try it on hospitalized patients. Doctors were free to prescribe it at the time but as an off-label medication. And they were prescribing it, and it was working. I think we've started to see a plateau in New York City of uh, the cases. This was early outpatient treatment, not hospital. Patients would get sick. They would go see their doctor. you would write a script for hydroxychloroquine. They would go home. They would take it. They'd get better in in a few days' time. They wouldn't progress. To this more lethal second stage of of the COVID-19 disease. Uh, The FDA never, ever realized or never acknowledged that COVID-19 was a two-step process. The early process when it's in your upper airway and the later process when it's systemic and you start abnormal blood clotting, your lungs become infected. And it spins up your immune system to the point where your own body starts to kill you. Uh, they never once made the delineation. Okay, but here's a
3: question. If this was pretty self-evident to you and other people that were experts, why, not just did the FDA miss it, why did they push back on you guys that you essentially, if you read this report, you guys went rogue? So so if the if the evidence out there was was so straightforward and so powerful how, how do we have the situation where these experts at the FDA are now coming forward to this select uh, subcommittee and saying essentially people like Hadfield, uh Navarro and these other guys don't really know what they're doing and they were going rogue If you, it, you it, have
4: it is, uh,
3: as soon as President Trump... Now, hold, 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 hang hang, hang on, hang on, Peter. You? Let me have... Sorry. L- Peter, Sorry. Gonna, I want I ha- Dr. Dr. Halford to answer. Okay.
2: If you have an effective outpatient treatment that's safe, it makes it very difficult to get an EUA for a vaccine, a brand new vaccine, a new type of technology used in a vaccine. Uh, to have $11 worth of tablets keep you out of the hospital and save your life. um, I don't think this was going to be allowed. Okay. Okay. Okay.
3: Hang on. Stop. Full stop. Full stop. Hang on. Full stop. You're making the case. I just want to make sure I'm clear. You're making the case that they didn't want to look at these therapeutics and particularly outpatient early stage therapeutics because they already had in mind to go on some sort of experimental vaccine where they would need a EUA and if you had these therapeutics out there, it'd be very t- tough to get in that you make a, I don't want to call it cynical, but you say, Hey, $11 here versus whatever the thousands of dollars it is. It's the, it's the difference in the value proposition for big pharma. Is that the, the heart of your argument?
2: Yes, it is. Both the vaccines and a drug called remdesivir. They were waiting to give a patient remdesivir. When we had that case out in, uh, Seattle, I think it was, the very first acknowledged case. There was a team there within hours to administer remdesivir. They got the guy very early. Um, it was one of the early Wuhan strains. There's a chance he probably would have gotten better by himself. But uh, they pumped it into him. And a couple days later, his appetite was back. And uh, he was getting his breath back. and it looked like a good idea. That was the data that we had. Plus, we knew the Chinese were very interested in the drug and to the point where they were ready to break a, a patent uh, to start manufacturing it themselves.
3: Okay, hang on. Dr. Hatfield, hang on for a second. I'm going to hold Dr. Hatfield, Peter Navarro. going to be joined by Gordon Chang and Bradley Thayer. All next, second half of The War Room.
2: War Room Battleground with Stephen K. Bannon.
3: Okay, welcome back uh, to the Battleground. We've had to restructure the show a little bit because I got to spend some more time with. Uh, I got Gordon Chang and, and Bradley Thayer coming up. Very disturbing news out of China, but we're going to go back to the original bad news out of China and the CCP COVID virus. We're going to go back to the year 2020. Uh, Stephen Hatfield, uh, Navarro, I'm now coming to you, but I want to tee up the following. As revered as uh, Dr. Stephen Hatfield is, remember, he was our kind of an an in-house consultant advisor for the first, I think, week of War and Pandemic. Uh, He had that book, I think it was Three Seconds to Midnight or Three Minutes to Midnight, just absolute a book that came out that's still the definitive book about handling pandemics. Um, When a guy like Dr. Hatfield makes an accusation as uh, brutally frank and startling as that, that this is about Big Pharma, this is about money, and hey, it is what it is, and whoever died, died. And that's the way they roll. Dr. Navarro, is that correct? Do you believe the same thing Dr. Hatfield thinks? You think that the, these decisions and now this kind of, I would say, essentially House Democrats' cover up of this in this report is as cynical Stephen, as, uh, as, as as Stephen Hatfield says? Is that they, they wanted to, they wanted to, they knew they couldn't issue an EUA uh, for, for uh, the experimental uh, vaccines. And they knew that the value proposition to pharma was to the 10th power of what it was with the $11 treatment from hydroxychloroquine, Dr. Peter Navarro.
4: So Stephen Hatfield, Doc Hatfield is 100% right, but it's only half of the story. The other half of the story is simply that as soon as President Donald Trump suggested that hydroxychloroquine might work as a therapeutic, the knives became out. To undermine the president on that, so hydroxy didn't have a chance. As soon as Trump said, "Yeah, this may work," they just started doing their like crazy stuff at CNN, New York Times, oh, 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 this kind of thing like that, and created what I called hydroxy hysteria. This is all in the my first memoir, the In Trump Time book, chapter seven, um, and you know, the 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 effect there was. The media kept doubling down on all this. And now, you know, we fast forward, and I think it's important to ask Stephen the the, the question. We've got Paxlovid, which is a therapeutic produced by Pfizer that costs $500, Steve, $500 for a five-day treatment course. It causes liver damage. It uh, interrupts HIV-type medicines. It causes uh, allergic reaction well, on, let me, let, me, let, let, let me ask Hatfield It's a, it's or, a crappy Are you are you
3: and d- d- are you works. saying that hang on, hang on, stop. Are you saying, Dr. Yeah. Hatfield, that this whole mess with the vaccines and with all this and the new treatments coming out, that this is all driven by the greed of a big pharma? Isn't that, isn't that too on the nose, or do you actually believe that?
2: No, they've been running this pandemic along with fauci. The conflicts of interest here are still uncertain and unexplored, but things this great and this perverse uh, to the point where the medical literature is affected. Uh, the O'Neill study, the New England Journal of Medicine, it was a breakthrough, 51% improved mortality with hydroxychloroquine given as the patient comes into casualty. This is This is major news. And the New England Journal wouldn't publish it. We have Janet Woodcock uh, on the editorial board uh, of, of, of the New England Journal of Medicine. And she's in charge of the drug safety things. She's the one that told Rick Bright, no, we have to, we can only give this to hospitalized patients. Um, the, the association with other companies, uh, this all needs to be explored. The vaccine people that had never produced a vaccine in their lives, why were they given preferential? The Moderna. Why was this given preferential over a known, uh, uh, drug company? Was this a, was this a conflict with Dr. Fauci? We don't know. This needs to be investigated, but something was very wrong because the efficacy of hydroxychloroquine. Then there were five good papers. Now. There's 351 papers, and in a meta-analysis of these 351 papers shows up to a 70 percent improvement in 30 different early treatment studies, and 81 up to an 81 percent lower mortality.
3: Do do, do, do do you have? We got to bounce, and i want to. I've got to get you guys back for a special, but I I don't. I haven't gone through the whole house thing. Did the minority side, the Republicans, are they making that case in, in this report? Or is anybody, or do you believe in the new Congress, we need a whole new set of investigations here because this cuts to the core of the regulatory capture of, of big pharma in, in the administrative state. So that's why I played the part at the beginning about the administrative state. Let me start with Hatfield and I'll go to Peter. I only got a few minutes. Dr. Hatfield, I don't see your argument being made even by guys that should be on your side of the football, the minority side of this select committee. So are you calling for a new set of investigations, a new set of of uh, House investigations starting with the new Congress, over and above what we already know they're going to do with Tony Fauci and the Wuhan lab and the interactions with the University of North Carolina, gain of function, the PLA, uh, the bioweapons program of the CCP, all of that. Are you calling for a new set of investigations just on this topic?
2: Yes, the data is there. All they have to do is look at it. Stephen Hahn said that, oh, uh, uh, Senator Johnson had him in front of uh, uh, of a hearing. And Stephen Hahn said, Dr. Hahn said, well, you know, it's proof that we need to start looking at the real world and, you know, see what was going on. Stephen Hahn could have come by the office at any time. Uh, Every paper ever written we had. And. In five minutes, he could see the efficacy of this drug. He never came by. Yet in September of 2020, he's on a radio program where he says, oh, yes, I I think hydroxychloroquine has an effect. My god, your job is to support the president of the United States in his decisions. This was the correct choice. Early outpatient treatment stops pandemics. In-hospital treatment does not. And this was foregone for in hospital treatments and vaccines. Dr. Uh,
3: Hatfield, how do people how do people get to your website or your social media, sir, to follow up on this?
2: Dr. Stephen D R S T E B E N, Dr. Stephen Hatfield, H A T F I L L dot com. There's numerous papers on this. Or you can contact uh, PCEN Media, Inc., and they'll, uh, they'll get you directed.
3: Real, real quick on Amazon, what's the, give the title of the book, because people should get this book and, as a primer to give us feed for these hearings next year. What, what's, what's the title of the book and where they get it on Amazon?
2: Three Seconds Until Midnight. And there's a second one that will be coming out shortly called Three Seconds After Midnight. Um. Anyway. Okay,
3: Dr. Hatfield, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Peter Navarro, uh, where do you? We got about two minutes. Where do we go from here? Where 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 do you go? They they kind of smear you and Dr. Hatfield in this report. Uh, where, where I do think. You, they, where do you go? Where do you ta- where do you take this fight? I think the committee did did the world a favor here by
4: letting this genie back out of the bottle. I mean, they. They insist that I, quote, wrongly pressured the FDA to push forward hydroxychloroquine. If if this works, we have studies now that show unequivocally that hydroxy saves lives and mitigates symptoms. So the question is, will this report reopen this debate? And at a minimum, come
3: January,
4: when the Republicans are back in control, there's going to be people in there who want to get to the bottom of this along with everything else we got yeah. to get to the bottom of no, with
3: these they they
4: hundreds of thousands of americans are dead today because of Steve. do you Hahn, think the fda because of janet woodcock and because of cnn and the new york times and the corporate media which would basically bury that drug even though it's 12 dollars and saves lives full stop
3: dr hadfield said this is a cr- Dr. Hadfield said this is a crime. Is this going to be a crime scene investigation, sir?
4: Look, in my In Trump Time book, I said it was murder or at least negligent homicide. It is. These people acted willfully, willfully to prevent a drug they knew could likely save lives. And they did it for political reasons. Uh, to stop Trump and for profit yeah. reasons to help big pharma. Okay. I mean, that's it's as disgusting have, as you get. Have, Nobody trusts the FDA have, or the FBI and everything in between with this government right now, and for good reason. I'm the administrative
3: state. It. Administrative state. Okay, get get real quickly how they get the book. Where they order the book from?
4: Uh, go, just go to peterdevaro Uh, taking back Trump's America. Taking back Trump's America on Amazon. Get it. It's the blueprint. And battle cry for taking the House back in 2022 and the White House back in 2024, taking back Trump's America must reading for everybody here in this country if we're going to stop these people.
3: Perfect, uh, sir. Thank you very much. Look forward to having you back on this topic. I want, I want to go to down to down. Gordon Chang. Uh, Gordon, thank you, sir. Gordon Chang is one of the most um, serious, knowledgeable um, observers and analysts regarding the Chinese Communist Party, the PLA, he had a very disturbing piece the other day that said the Chinese Communist Party, the PLA, are preparing for a kinetic war, and they're preparing for a kinetic war now, not in the future. Now, Gordon Chang, thank you for joining us. Uh, lay out your evidence of why you think they're going, they're getting ready for a kinetic war now in the South China Sea or in Taiwan.
1: There's a number of instances. So, for instance, a, a Chinese entrepreneur, factory owner, a couple of weeks ago, told me that. Um, Local officials came to him and said he's no longer making medical equipment for civilians. He's going to be making um, items for war. And he also said that there were a number of other people in his sort of, uh, you know, also factory owners who um, were told the same thing. So it seems like it was systemic. We have heard these uh, reports from the Financial Times and others that uh, the Chinese government is trying to sanctions proof itself. Um, So, for instance, they held a meeting um, in April um, of banks in Beijing talking about how to protect the country's foreign reserves from Western sanctions. The Communist Party has told its officials to shed their foreign assets so they won't be subject to foreign penalties. And on the first of last year, um, China's national defense law was amended so that uh, power was taken away from the Civilian State Council given to the Central Military Commission of the Communist Party, um, which runs the military to mobilize civilian society. So this is not just a question of the Chinese military um, bulking up. This is a question of organizing civilians to get ready for kinetic conflict. There's a number of other instances um, that, uh, uh, that I report on, but essentially what you see is a pattern of the Communist Party getting ready to go to war.
3: Gordon, they've had this a situation now in the in the financial industry. We're gonna get there on here in a second, but the, the the collapse of the real estate market. You see tanks outside of the of the Bank of China branch in Henan, uh, all types of financial turmoil. You know, real estate prices dropping twenty percent. Is a is is this their natural reaction of drive to hyper nationalism or ultra nationalism to offset what looks like an increasing dire financial and economic picture, sir?
1: I think so Steve. One thing we know for sure, um while the Chinese economy internally is falling apart, um you know, the property sector just to give you one example. Um both sales and prices fell about 40% in the first half of this year compared to the comparable period last year. That's a failure of the core of the Chinese economy because property represents somewhere between 25 to 30% of gross domestic product, which is very high by Um, international standards. Um, We see the bank runs that you referred to, the mortgage boycotts, all sorts of signs of problems. The only thing that's going right for the Chinese Communist Party right now with the economy is export sales. But apart from that, everything else is failing. And and while all of this is going on, um, you have a much more belligerent Chinese uh, uh, diplomats, um, Chinese posture towards neighbors like India, Philippines, Japan, Taiwan, So you put the two together and the conclusion is, I think, apparent that uh, what they're trying to do is distract Chinese people away from obvious policy failures at home by creating um, problems abroad.
3: Is the 20th Party Congress, where Xi is uh, supposed to be anointed uh, emperor for life, is that driving things? Does he want to do this beforehand or do you think he'll wait till after that? Or in your mind, may he even delay it?
1: I think he has to, first of all, on the 20th National Congress, um, if tradition holds, and that's a big if, it will be in October or November of this year. If Xi Jinping is really powerful, he could very well just postpone the 20th National Congress for a long time, which is what his hero Mao Zedong used to do with national congresses. Um, But what we're seeing, I think, is intense political infighting right now, um, which means that China is probably not going to start a major military adventure, um, largely because um, to do this, Steve, um, Xi Jinping, for instance, if he wanted to invade Taiwan, he would have to give some general or admiral almost complete control over the Chinese military, which would make that flag officer the most powerful figure in China. And at a time right, right now where he wants to be, get that third term as general secretary, he's not going to divest himself of authority and power. So I don't think anything's going to happen in the near future. But if he gets that third term as general secretary, then yeah, all bets are off, because then all sorts of things can happen. And he's got a window of opportunity in which to act, which means that if we can get over the next two, three years, we'll be okay. But this next to two to three years, I think, is a time of heightened danger.
3: Gordon, how can people follow you and your analysis? Because it's uh, it's the best out there. How do people stay in touch with you?
1: Um, I tweet um, developments at, at Gordon G. Chang, G-O-R-D-O-N-G-C-H-A-N-G. I archive all my articles for free at my website, www.gordonchang.com.
3: Gordon Chang, thank you very much. Honored to have you on here, sir.
1: Thank you so we, much, Steve. We start, I'm honored we start, to be on your show.
3: Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.